and welcome to another episode of Mind on the Game, a event podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with men and women from across the sporting landscape, discussing their sporting journeys, their mental health, and how they keep their mind on the game. This episode of Mind on the Game is going to be another nostalgia trip because I'm speaking to a former teammate, longtime friend and vent champion, Jay Williams. Jay is a communications professional and second team captain for Wants Creek Club. Me and Jay grew up together in the club, although he was a lot, lot better than me. Jay wrote an article for Vent quite recently about his journey at Wants CC, becoming a captain at a relatively young age and the responsibility that brings, particularly when it comes to managing your players' mental health. Dressing room culture, Friday night net sessions, race and more are all on the menu for this pod. Here's how this episode of Mind on the Game went down. Jay, welcome to Mind on the Game, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a while since we last saw each other. I want to say the vent gig. Yeah, no, no, no. We saw each other in the pub. Just, just, oh, just kind yeah, of pre-lockdown. Yeah. yeah, 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 we did. How are you, mate? And how are you adjusting to this very weird new normal we are living in because you're moving soon aren't you yeah literally this is my last day here in this house moving house tomorrow got the keys about a week and a half ago it's just been all hands on deck i've had the week off work i've been painting i've been decorating (laughs) i had a crash course in diy i have to say i've had to do some very quick learning on that front but yeah no I'm, i'm good i'm really good actually and how are you i'm all right i think surviving is probably the term i use a lot now to people i'm okay ish you're the second guest on mind of the game so i hope you feel very privileged yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got a lot to get through. Shall we just crack on? Let's kick the pod off, mate, by talking about your cricketing journey. How did you first fall in love with the game and how old were you? For as long as I can remember, really, to be <laughs> honest. Well, it was just something that was always on TV, you know, back in the Channel 4 days. All the test matches on there. My dad always had it on the radio when he was out in the garden. So both sides of my family have always loved cricket. So for as long as I can remember, I had a little bat going out in the back garden trying to convince anyone I could to bowl some overs at me or to bat while I bowled at them and yeah I joined Wanstead at the age of 10. It's about the same age I think we probably joined isn't it? Yeah probably yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so then it just kind of kicked on from there and you know I was hooked I'm still playing so. (laughs) And as you played more and got older how did your love for cricket grow mate and what impact did that have on your mental health and your adolescence? Cricket and other sports in general has played a, a massive role in my life especially in terms of kind of boosting my Mm. my morale, boosting my mental health. I'll probably say it a lot today, but it's kind of given me an outlet, something different to distract from other parts of my life. Not that the other parts of my life were bad, Mm. but, you know, I always had cricket. A good distraction. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I played cricket, I played football, I played tennis, I played rugby. So I was always kind of out playing and your brain is occupied in a different way doing Mm. that. Yeah, growing up, my, my love for cricket's always been there. Going through higher levels and, and testing myself at different levels is something that's given me a lot of joy over the years. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, well, there's a reason why I'm still playing. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you were a troublesome kid, but do you think playing all those sports kept you out of possible trouble? I think I had enough of a grounding at home that I wasn't going to be getting into too much trouble. But I'm never really like an angry, angry kid. Mm. But any kind of anger that I might have had, you can just take it out in the sporting environment. It's great for that. I mean, it's great to hear these kind of stories 
about people that their lives could have gone two ways and sport has kind of given them that outlet. I talk about Mikel Antonio at West Ham. He's talked a lot about how he was in gangs in South London and he was getting into trouble and football gave him this way out of that. It'd be great to hear more of that in the future. I think stuff like sport, stuff like music, it's just a distraction, isn't it? Especially mm. if you're getting in trouble outside. For me on a personal note, I don't think that I, I would have been affected too much in that respect, but cricket, football, rugby I was just able to take out any kind of small anger that I had it can just manifest in my sporting mm. you were one of the gun wicketkeeper batsmen at the club most people would argue you have to be pretty crazy to be wicketkeeper as you've basically got an extremely fast ball that's very hard flying at you every single minute Yep. And it could go anywhere. Was that fearlessness something innate within you or did it take a while to develop? You're not wrong at all there, Freddie. It's, <laughs> it, it, you, you have to be absolutely mad to be a wicketkeeper, but I absolutely love it. I think I've broken pretty much every finger. I mean, I'll show you my fingers now. Look, they're all bent and crooked. For the listeners, they are not great. <laughs> yeah. uh, even, even yesterday, I've, I've bruised up my hand quite badly, been icing it and I'm going back to play today. So I'll be strapping up my hands and everything. This season, I've been hitting the jaw twice, been hitting the head. You get hit in the chest. I think that fearlessness is something that kind of grows with your confidence in your own ability. I remember the first time I ever kept without a helmet on. I remember the first time I ever kept standing up to the wicket without a helmet on. That is scary when mm. you first do it. I mean, I did it in Jamaica when I was 18. I just turned 18. And I think I got about 35 not out at the end of the innings. And I came off completely dehydrated because I've been batting with the helmet. And I thought there's no way I'm going back out with a helmet to keep mm. here. And I'm just watching the ball and I was thinking, I hope this one doesn't hit me in the head. Because sometimes it's not even your fault. Somebody could get a, an edge onto mm. your head. But I think it gets to the point with that in terms of that fearlessness is when you trust in your own ability for your hands to get you out of trouble. Mm. And that's something as you get better with your wicket keeping, you know your own boundaries. Yeah, the better you get, it's, it's kind of better you get hurt less. Mm. And when was the moment when you decided you wanted to be a wicket keeper? And what was like the first game that you ever wicket keep like? I remember turning up for an indoor game. I turned up and I was one of the last ones there. And James Fitzgerald. Big came, shout out to James. Yeah, came up to me and he was just like, oh, you're keeping today because we don't have a wicket keeper in, <laughs> indoors. And I was like, all right. Because <laughs> they hit the ball and I just was completely used to just running after the ball if it went anywhere near me. But with wicket keeper, you have to run up to the stumps. So my first game was <laughs> a little bit amateur. <laughs> um, but from then, I just I just kept doing it and I, I absolutely loved it. Like even today, I've hardly had a bat all season. But for me, just going and wicket keeping all day, that's what I enjoy doing mm. if that was taken away from me I don't think I'd enjoy my cricket as much but mm. it's that whole thing about you're involved every single ball so you can't switch off for a second and that's what I love about wicket keeping let's talk about some of your favorite stories from your youth career at the club first you were in the age group below me so we trained pretty often together on a Friday night our group's pretty much yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. when it came to training were there any matches or Friday nights down the club that stick out to you that you can share with the listeners you know what I used to love those Friday nights you know you're finishing school and you think right the weekend starts here you go and have a bit of cricket we used to get a bit of fish and chips off afterwards and that, always that, mate always that's the start of the weekend <laughs> yeah in terms of some good memories I mean, I mean the friday nights they all kind of blur into one now because it was so long ago sundays i you know i just remember any time that i got 25 retired <laughs> which 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 ended up being quite a lot towards my under 13 days i remember some of the big sixes i hit i think my most memorable was when i got 100 or 30 balls at nutter lane for the listeners the nutter lane ground is not easy to bat on yeah. it's basically a giant hill yeah <laughs> they weren't very good the other team so i'm not gonna claim too much kudos from that but yeah I was pretty chuffed with that mm. one speaking of not very good teams I need to ask you about one legendary game I'm not going to mention the club because <laughs> we're not going to get in trouble the scoreline was just obscene and it kind of went down a bit in legend as amongst the lads that we were playing with at the time if I'm right in saying did your team make 400 for one in a 20 over game and then bowl the other team out for 12 or is that inaccurate I mean you're nearly there <laughs> 
it was it was a forty over game. To be I was fair. okay, okay, forty it was, over game. It was game. a forty over game. It was a bit humiliating actually for the other team. I think I was captain in that game as well. So I lost the toss. We knew that they were going to be a poor team, and we had all our gun players out. Mm. We had Kishan was playing for England under nineteen at the time. <laughs> yeah, when he was like sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> basically all of our team were either playing for Essex or London. I think there was only a couple in the team that weren't. When they won the toss, I was thinking, please just bat first. And they decided they were going to bowl. One of our openers got. 17 off 17 overs and then got run out yeah yeah, yeah. So not, that was well, we won't mention who it was but I heard the person who got run out was vexed Rehan batted all the way through got 195 not out Kishan batted for 23 overs got 223 not out <laughs> Jesus Christ I think he hit 34 off one over it was just absolute carnage did you lose the ball like four times or something like oh, that at, at least it was a ground with a big forest area around it and yeah how many times that ball went into the forest I do not know I think the record ever scored in the match play competition was 420 or something and I think we end up winning by about 440 runs. We bowled them out for 20, 22, I think. Wow. I mean, I hope there's none of that team listening because it might have scarred them for life, that game, to be honest. It probably would have scarred me for life. Pretty bad, that, yeah. yeah. It was. I think there was one guy there who played a game in the morning and he'd got a fifer. So he came all pumped up and he was the one who got hit for 34 and won over by Kishin. Oh, wow. Life comes at you fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very quickly taken down a few, <laughs> yeah. few pegs, but... Yeah, if some of them retired straight after that game, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I wouldn't blame them either. Uh, yeah, but that's why I was thinking, I hope this lot decide to bat first and they didn't. We could have been home hours before, to be honest. Mm. Your year group, it's fair to say, was much more talented than the team I played in. We won most of our games, but played, I guess, more to muck about than win trophies. But your team were literally the best team in the country when you won the Under-16 National Championship. So that team had a really strong core, likes of you, Will, Harry, James Fitzgerald, obviously, Kishin, Rayhan and Spike. There's probably a couple of others that I've missed out, please don't at me just tell me a bit about that journey and what that trophy meant to you and the team that was a fantastic journey it all started kind of when we were under 13 we lost in the regional semi-final really really poor loss we just completely capitulated from then we didn't lose another game ever our age group three years quite a good record to be honest yeah Yeah, that was our learning curve and then from that even when Kishan and Rehan weren't playing we still winning everything we were so strong that year you could tell something special was starting and that journey was great I think I played in every single game contributed with the bat contributed with my keeping so on a personal note that was really good we got to the finals at Kibworth we stayed overnight in this Premier Inn in Leicester we kind of had a little training session there there was a lot of media attention Graham Swan was there Luke Wright Michael Vaughan I remember we had another capitulation in the semi-final we played against I think they were called Yaxley they were from Hampshire something like Yaxley they got us all out for 80 odd everybody watching was kind of thinking oh we've come, come all this way done it again basically yeah come all this way to just collapse in the semi-final completely out of character as well Ishmael Dar was the only one who did anything he got about 45 but except for that we kind of all our gun players got out pretty early I remember I was batting at 7 I got one not out or something carried your bat at 7 mate I know yeah because everybody just got out I don't know something special Just it's kind of like an out of body experience looking back now I think I got something like 4 thumpings and 2 catches and a run out in that game I think that's probably my best ever keeping performance mm. And I ended up winning fielder of the tournament for that. And you, went get, on to win, you went on to win the game to get to the final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we bowled them out for 66. And then from that next game, we got about 148 and bowled them out for 44 or something like that. Mm. So it, it was easy. But yeah, it's just kind of that moment where you think, wow, like we are the best team in the country. Did you get a guard of honour at Lords, or did you do a, something we did, we, like that? Yeah, we did. We did a guard of honour at Lords. Yeah. yeah, England against Pakistan. We, we did the guard of honour out there, and yeah, we were in the program. We were in the match program for mm. that day. Pictures of us all celebrating and. Mm. 
a little story about it. There was it was in the newspapers. I think that I was called Lightning Quick Williams in the newspaper behind <laughs> well, the Well, you've got you've yeah. got that you've got that clipped up somewhere, haven't yeah, you? I can yeah, tell. yeah. <laughs> well, I've got I've got the program downstairs. I'll show you after this. Yeah, I still got the ball from the semi final, which mm. was given to me for man the match. I think Michael Vaughan. He was on TMS the next day. He was bigging me up on a Test match special, and mm. I was thinking, Oof. that was the height of my cricketing mm. career, though. By the way, was it that, went, was it that went your favourite moment? Would you say? Yeah, by far. I know other people in that team have gone on to do much better, but for about half of us, that was a height of our career, I think. Mm. And I mean, it yeah. would be because a lot of you didn't go on to play, you know, semi-professional or professional and you were just kids mm. who were good at cricket and enjoyed it. So mm. that level of, I guess, acclaim, even within our bubble, must have been massive for you. Yeah. Not yeah. just, for, I guess, for yourself as a personal achievement, but maybe for your mental health as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I even remember coming back to Wanstead, just being in the Wanstead High Street and thinking, we're the best team in the you're country. You're a man. Did you think Re- you were a man for a while? Represent- representing <laughs> this town. <laughs> Yeah, we got like special ties given to us and uh, yeah, it felt good. That was really quite special. I'm sure Len and Trevor probably gave you a big shout at the club dinners or whatever it was after that. What coaches at the club had the biggest impact on you from a mental health perspective, would you say? Whether mentoring or in your ability Mm. or maybe if you had a bad game, you know, putting an arm around you, stuff like that. Len, for sure. Legend at the club. Him always in the early years. Mark and Brian, Mark Wade, Will's dad, we mentioned mm. Will earlier, we mentioned mm. Spike as well, Spike's dad, Brian, mm. both them legends, two, them two massive legends, legends. The club as well, yeah. They were always our coaches from an early age and then when we kind of got to that kind of under 15, under 16 stage, we had Arfan who was the first team captain, Adnan is his twin brother, they were both playing in the first team and they were kind of doing all these kind of fielding drills, batting drills with us. It's a combination of coaching, making people have fun, but also taking it quite seriously, especially when we got to a higher level and I think Mark, Brian, Adnan and Arfan, they struck that right chord. I always enjoyed those sessions mm. and was, we were getting better at the same time. Was there ever a bad game that you had or maybe one story or two stories that you can tell? And especially for any kids or teenagers who are listening who do have a bad game, can you share one with the listeners? And if so, what did you learn from it? Going back to what you said about putting your arm around, that was Arfan. Funnily enough, it was in the under 15 on the journey. It was only like the second round. We played Walthamstow and we won with ease, but I had a poor game behind the stumps. I think Aaron was bowling really well. He was bamboozling the back. Batsman, he was bamboozling me as well. I just couldn't read it. It kept going through four buyers, four buyers. I think I ended up with 20 odd buyers. I think still that's probably one of the worst performances I've ever had on a personal note. And Arfan kind of put his arm around me. I kind of came off with a big sulk, threw my gloves down and just stormed off. Back in the day when I used to take it a bit more seriously than I do now. But Arfan, yeah, literally arm around me, took me for a walk around the boundary. That was a really, really nice moment in my mm. life, I think. Was he- that a big moment in your life in regards to having that mm. ability to shake off a bad game or know that you can have one and bounce back and rise from it basically yeah that was it you know when you're a teenager that's what you think this that game you know it's the be all or end all but it's not often kind of reiterated to me that we know that you're a really good wicket keeper you've had this one bad game and even to be fair I won't name him, there's a player in that team as well who wasn't always the kindest person to other players when they had a bad game but I think because he rated me as a wicketkeeper as well, he came up to me afterwards and he was saying, just put this game behind you, it's fine. And I think that was a really important lesson for me to learn, I think, quite early, is that you are going to have a bad game. You just have to trust in your own ability to just work hard and then get back to it in the next game. And, and sure enough, that same journey, which culminated in that performance I was talking about a minute ago, where I got the match ball and Michael Vaughan bigged me up on TMS. Mm. So... Mm. Yeah, that's all part of the same journey. I'm very grateful to Arfan for that moment. Just before we go on to your adult career, I just wanted to touch back on that point about the exclusionary culture. Obviously, there is an attitude which you need to have an elite level where 
a lot of players will set standards in a very ruthless environment. You hear of stories about players in Premier League football clubs or rugby clubs or cricket clubs where players who are leaders will berate other players for not living to that standard. But back then, I definitely knew of players at the club our age who sometimes like wouldn't talk to other players they deemed not as good. They might not have even been in their team. Can you just talk about maybe that dark side of youth level and adult sport and why that can be dangerous? There's definitely, I think, some elitism there. For me, it was never a case of you're better than me or I'm better than you. It was just a case of, look, we're all here to play cricket. We're all here mm. to have fun. For other people, cricket was a very, very serious thing for them. Why that means you can't talk to somebody who's not as good as you, I do not know. I think it can be very damaging, you know, because if you're in that situation where this person clearly doesn't rate you and he won't even talk to you, that's going to be completely damaging your morale, completely mm. damaging your confidence in your own ability. There was players there, I know that in your team, who were good enough to be pushing towards mm. the higher teams the definitely a few of us yeah, 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 yeah maybe not me but definitely a few <laughs> of us <laughs> yeah Barney Mead for example yeah I, he, I, was, I, he was probably the player who I think probably kicked on the most out of our team because yeah. he was playing for I think for twos and threes when we were kids I remember him coming back to us like on a game or a Friday night and he was like oh yeah just open the bat with my dad and I was like we were all like right imagine like <laughs> playing with your dad and like making a 50-60 Danny Mead yeah me and him had an opening <laughs> partnership for years in the sixth eleven when I was about 13 We'll talk about the TFC in a minute, but <laughs> basically everybody who was batting at three, four, five, none of them got a bat all season. Me and Danny were just being completely greedy, just getting all the runs ourselves. Players like Barney and that who were kind of knocking on the door, feel like players like that should be encouraged, you know, to kind of push on. Not They made the decision very early on, some of them players, that, you know, these lot are not good enough. Mm. And I think because... You felt it as well. Yeah, you definitely I definitely felt it. I mean, we were training, so most of us got on pretty well but there was definitely one or two players which we won't mm. name you felt the vibe straight away whether you're in the nets or whether you were fielding with them yeah. and it was just that like attitude of you're not good enough so why are you talking to me it's one or two players like yeah. we said by and large our team was very very kind of inclusive mm. but there were maybe three in all our year groups mm. who had that kind of elitist attitude but some people like that have just got that mentality then you're not going to be able to budge from mm. that as you progressed into the adult team, mate, most of us were probably not good enough to get in and our club careers sort of came to an end. What was that transition like for you? And how did you adjust from, say, looking up to the first teamers, which we all did, I guess, because a lot of them were our coaches, to eventually playing alongside them and then captaining them, which we'll come on to a bit. I think the transition from youth cricket to adult cricket is one of the biggest ones that youngsters have to make. It's intimidating, for sure. I remember my first game, I think I was about 12, I got called up to the fifth 11. I remember turning up, I didn't even know how long the game was. I'd only ever really played 20 over games and the first team bats for 52 overs and we were fielding first. And it kind of got to 20 overs and I was thinking maybe we might be coming off. But then we kept going. And then we got to 40 overs. I thought surely we're coming off. And then we kept going. I remember going up to Johansia and I was saying, because he'd played a couple of games. And I was saying, how long is this game? And he goes, they can bat for as long as they want. Because it was a time game. They lose their points after 52 overs. But some of them teams just used to bat 70 overs and just play for a draw from early on. And that is one of the hardest things. That is mentally and physically enduring. Mm. <laughs> Especially mm. as like a 12 year old. But you get used to it. And then as you progress up the teams, like you said, these are all players you've been looking up to and then all of a sudden you're playing alongside some of them. And yeah, it's good. Luckily, we said about that kind of elitist attitude, luckily most of the ones I encountered were very much encouraging me to kick on. I ended up playing second 11 cricket at quite a very early age and I played in that team for quite a while. So you start to become more comfortable with the players you're playing with. You start to have a bit more belief in your own ability. Mm. 
I mean, definitely from when I've had my first second eleven game, I think I was 14 or 15 or something, and I thought, well, like, this is a pretty scary environment. They had an overseas player who just dropped down from the ones. I remember my first game, and I was batting in the rain. It was quite dark at Chelmer Park in Chelmsford, and he was just way too quick for me. Although mm. I managed to edge him for a four, then edge him for two, and then we came off for rain, so I was six not out of <laughs> two balls. I was like, yeah, this is good. Um, That's my high score. <laughs> <laughs> it's, at, it's eight, actually, but, you know, for the joke, that works. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, there was maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome early on. Mm. Am I ready for this? But the more you play in it, the more you feel comfortable. Was um, there a moment where that became normalised? I don't know if there was a game, but I kind of had that one-off game for the second eleven. I think it was towards the end of one year. And then the following year, I think the first game of the season, I was in the second eleven, And I thought, OK, I didn't know how long that was going to be. And then when you keep getting selected week, 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 I mean, I wasn't really batting in the second eleven. I was just keeping at that stage. But when you start getting selected every week, okay, you know, the captain believes in me, thinks I'm the best wicketkeeper for the job to do for him. So um, just kind of becomes a bit normalised. You have a few good games and suddenly you think people come up to you and they give you a bit of praise and that always helps. I don't think there's a particular game that that happened, but it's definitely a good feeling when you, you feel welcomed into the team. Mm. You wrote an article on Venn about becoming the captain of the second team at Wanstead and the mental health responsibilities that brings. It was called Captaincy and Mental Health, Why Win at All Costs is an Outdated Mentality. Now, before we discuss the article, itself given in once its history of producing county players for Essex captains leading players being given that captaincy is no small feat and no small achievement I should say what was that feeling like when you were made captain and who put that trust in you I think it was it was a very nice moment I mean I'd captain once did at youth group level yep. and I think indoor level so I think maybe I'd been earmarked for a while but yeah I started off by captain third eleven obviously captaining the second 11 now. It's nice to feel like you're somebody that we feel has got a bit of responsibility about them, can handle it, you can manage players. There's a lot to captaincy Saturday. It's, it's a completely different kettle of fish from doing the indoor team, from doing the junior teams. Because junior teams, your team gets selected for you. Most of the time, the batting lineup's already set. You're being told who's going to bowl. So you'd only really have to move the field. And even then, your coaches are helping you out. Indoor, it's only just a quick game. Saturday, cricket is entirely different there's a lot of things you've got to learn pretty quickly I'm talking about kind of like man management mm. you're talking about because on the captains isn't it most of the time at youth level or adult level amateur wise or semi-pro instead of the coaches yeah stuff like problem solving stuff like tact diplomacy it's a gold mine for the CV to be honest <laughs> yeah all of those key terms being able to, yeah cricket captaincy yeah proven that yeah kind of on and off the field there's some big responsibilities there you get players that are disgruntled because they haven't made the team you've got to call people up and explain why they're not in the team you've got to explain to parents why their kids are not being selected as long as you can justify all those decisions I think yeah going back to the question I think it's nice that the chairman of the club decided that I was somebody that he could put his trust in to run the third team and then ultimately the second team mm. let's talk about the article itself now why did you want to write it and what was it about for the listeners who haven't read it I mean, I remember when we were sitting in that pub in South Woodford, we are just having a, a little discussion about different articles. Could have had my own subsection on the website with some <laughs> of the ideas that we were coming out with. But I think this was the key thing for me, was I wanted to get my stance on captaincy mm. across with that inclusivity angle. I think that's something that's often overlooked. And this is why that kind of win-at-all-cost mentality is thrown around. When you're talking about top levels, win-at-all-cost, I think that's completely fine to have because... It's a cutthroat business, isn't it? You know, it's ruthless. Yeah, yeah. You know where you stand if you get to that level because mm. there's so much riding on it in terms of the financial aspects. I'm talking about all sport here. Even at first eleven level, there's high stakes because you're talking about players going on to play for county and mm. what whatnot. There's loads of paid players in first eleven cricket. So yeah, there's a certain level of acceptance in that. There's probably discussions you can have about the dark side of it, but you can't eliminate that completely. Yeah, you can't eliminate that completely. But I think. From second eleven down, I think win at all costs is not the right slogan to carry around with you. I think win 
is definitely something very important. I'm very, very competitive and I will always play to win. And that is important. It is yeah. very important, I think. But at the same time, when you're talking about those costs, what are those costs? If it's at the cost of discouraging a young player from ever playing cricket again or the lasting effect that it could have on someone's mental health, then was that win really worth it? People is- remember that a lot more when they're younger, the TFCs, than the adult ones because I think you're just better at dealing with it. With the adult TFCs as well, you kind of could realise why it's happened. Quite a lot of TFCs are avoidable, quite a lot are unavoidable. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, yesterday we bowled a team out for 95. So half my team got TFCs because yeah. we only lost three wickets. and Literally nothing you can do. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing you can do when it's a low-scoring game like that or or like we said, when me and Danny were scoring all the runs for the sixth eleven, poor I think it was Geary batting at number four. He hardly got a bat all season. But I think Barney was batting at number three. He hardly got a bat all season because <laughs> we were bowling teams out for low scores as well. And then me and Danny just go off, and we used to compete about who could. Who you could, selfish, who... selfish men. I <laughs> know. Oh, we're trying. We're trying to outscore each other, so we're trying to get to fifty quickest. But yeah, I think most of the time that TFC is avoidable. And yeah, it's not just about the TFC, but it's also about like we've said, we've kind of berating players sometimes. There are a few players in my team that I know can take it and they might yeah. need it as well. And, and yeah, so it's important that you know your personnel. There's a couple of players in my team that I know it won't go through to them unless I suddenly get quite sharp with them mm. and have to do a little bit of shouting and get them back in the zone. There was definitely one, I'm not going to name him, there was one player this season who's just trying too much with the ball. He bowled really well outside off, outside off, play and miss, play and miss. And he's thinking, I'm not getting a wicket, so let me try and bowl really fast or try and bowl from a wide angle or he's trying to bowl a bouncer and he's going for a wide. And not, just getting impatient, basically. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Because we play 40 over games at the moment, it's so important to just keep the score down. That's what quite a lot of my bowlers doing really well. That's what this one person wasn't really understanding and I had to have a little shout at him and next ball right on the spot, got the wicket. Whereas other players won't react to that. You know, if, And I if, never did. Yeah. I, never, I, I was never a player who, if someone shouted at me after I'd been poor, I'll never react great. No, I'm exactly in the same boat as you. If I've made a mistake and somebody shouted at me, then I completely just go into my shell even more. Mm. You start to feel really bad mm. about your mistake. You're playing over and over in your head. And that's where it's important to understand each player and their needs. And those players kind of just need a, a bit of a quiet word. Don't worry that you let that ball through your legs, you know. You know tell them what you expect of them. And yeah, if just, they know that you expect a certain level of them, but that's all almost like you're putting your faith in them if that mm. makes sense that's what I always enjoyed yeah. if someone says I know you can do this mm. this is what I expect and that's more like okay he's put his faith and trust in me I'm going to go and perform yeah it's just that words of encouragement isn't it if you bowled a couple of wide it's just a bit of you know like come on mate be in the field kind of geeing you up and then you kind of go again yeah, I think that's one of the most important things It's weigh up those costs before you make any kind of ruthless decision. And what was reaction to that article like? And have you even seen a change in people's behaviour around the club who might have read it and adjusted their behaviour accordingly, maybe? The reaction was overwhelmingly positive, which was really, really nice to hear. I had people come up to me and said, fantastic article that kind of resonates with my beliefs as well. Or other people who say, I've never really thought of it that way, but that's a really important message. And I've got quite a few nice messages from a few people down the club just saying it to me. And I I think it's hard to judge whether that those have sunk in for some people mm. because obviously I've only been playing my second 11 games but as long as those key messages can kind of be shared out there hopefully that can help any kind of aspiring I think that's my belief as well is that the way I captain there's a few younger players in my side who maybe they'll go on to become captains in the future and hopefully they see what I'm doing and think this kind of inclusivity approach that I'm taking is something that we would like to do as well mm. in the future. Before we move on to dressing room culture, for any of the listeners who might be playing cricket, Jay, when you were a player, what mental tools or techniques did you use to ensure your mind was on the game? 
concentration is the key thing for me. It's when I'm wicket keeping, you can't switch off. Can't switch off for one moment. Sometimes you end up going through the motions a little bit as a wicket keeper. So maybe your mind's not completely on the game, even though you've got to be concentrating. Otherwise, if you're playing against a batsman who's been middling it every time, it's easy to switch off. You think he's, he's just going to hit this one. Sometimes like a tool that I use, I just tell myself that every single ball is going to come to me. It doesn't matter. The batsman's going to miss it. Even if it hits his bat, my gloves are going to be right there where the ball was, especially if he's starting to come down the wicket a bit because you're going to be in the game for stumping you need to be switched off and I'm telling myself almost mouthing to myself watch the ball watch the ball it's coming to you watch the ball similar thing with the batting really is sometimes I can go through the motions as well with the batting I'm kind of playing the ball I'm not really watching not really moving my feet and suddenly you just need to go all the way back to basics and think right where's my stance how's my grip and then watch the ball and you're just telling yourself watch the ball watch the ball watch the ball and I think it's that that's the concentration thing which is key for me I've never really been one to visualize myself getting big scores or hitting mm. big shots or taking a wonder catch I just take every ball as it comes and concentrate also when I'm batting I always count my score even if it's up on the board that's me switched on it's not that I'm particularly concerned with what I've got but I'm just switched on so it's giving me something to concentrate on and that helps to keep my mind focused on the game dressing room culture is also something I want to discuss with you mate when it comes to cricket did you ever find cricket or have found cricket to be a sport that's harboured toxic masculinity or stopped men from opening up about their mental health issues and have you ever encountered it and challenged it? I think you'd be hard pushed to find a sporting environment where toxic masculinity doesn't exist to be mm. honest which is a really sad state of affairs but yes it's amazing really what you hear coming out of some people's mouths when the dressing room doors are locked and it's just you and 10 other lads people think they can just get away with saying whatever they want you know mm. and think that makes them sound cool or mm. macho or whatever the reality of it is that the majority of the people in the room don't want to hear that it's amazing because you're thinking would you be saying that if your partner was here or if your parents were here no you wouldn't would you so like, I don't want to hear it it's something that I've thought about a lot recently actually it's never been something that I've really challenged you know if somebody said that's gay or you know don't be a pussy or something yeah yeah, like yeah, that. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. I've never really been one to challenge that kind of thing even though I've not felt comfortable hearing it Maybe this is something that I could work on in the future, but I've never really been that kind of outspoken kind of person. I'm not going to overplay it. I think cricket is a lot better than other sports. I've been mm. I've been in much worse sporting environments. That toxic masculinity does exist in sports still. It's something which hopefully is on its way out, but it's not completely gone yet. And just on that point as well, mate, do you think you've been in environments where lads have felt comfortable in talking about their mental health or being honest if they were struggling? And did you ever help them if they came to you about something? I still think with sport, there's a long way to go. But there seems to be that taboo still surrounding mental health and sport. It's, it's almost like I can't be seen to be weak in a masculine environment. Or if I'm honest, I get dropped. Exactly, yeah. So it's that. I mean, I'd like to think I'm a very approachable person, especially, you know, as a captain. I'd like to think that if somebody was struggling with something, they could have a quiet word. They'd know that it was completely confidential. I've never actually experienced that. I've no, nobody's ever come up to me and, and opened up about mental health in, in the cricket environment. I think people might be... Even if they were struggling with it, they might be embarrassed to speak mm. out or, yeah, like you said, they might fear for their place. They might mm. be fear. Or fear getting bantered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. Sport has got a long way to go with that. I don't feel like currently it is an environment where you could open up to your teammates, maybe on a one to one basis because we're all friends outside of it. But yeah, I mean, it's disappointing, really. But hopefully things are going in the right direction in terms of the dialogue being created there. More notable players have been coming out and talking about it recently. I'm thinking about, you know, Marcus Triscothic in cricket. I'm mm. talking about Danny Rose in football. And there's, mm. there's so many examples now. 
you just need those role models. If you are struggling, you need to know that there is something you can do. And throughout these moments and stories, Jay, how do you think cricket's helped you as a person and shaped you into the person you are today? Undoubtedly has played a kind of influential central role in my life. Like I said earlier, that outlet, I've been very lucky throughout my life to have very good mental health. And that is, I think, partly down to having, you know, the sporting outlet. Anything was getting too much. I've always got a game of cricket at the weekend. I've always got a kick about with my mates. I've always can go down and play a bit of tennis. I can go and play a bit of rugby. I think sport in general, and I think most particularly cricket, has given me that distraction from everything else in life, mm. which which has really, really boosted my mental health. And just on that distraction, one point in the article I really wanted to touch on was the escapism angle and the escapism that cricket gave us as kids when we were in school. So it was certainly escapism for me when I was in secondary school, when I was getting bullied and allowed me to concentrate on something else other than my GCSEs and kind of getting out of that school. Why is having this distraction important for kids and their mental health, not just GCSEs, perhaps A-levels as well when things get really stressful? Yeah, that's the whole thing. It's a very stressful time for these kids. And I think parents and children alike can have this tunnel vision when it comes to studies. You go to school, you come home, you start, you got tuition and then you're studying in the evenings. I think there's so much value. It doesn't work for everybody, but for me, I think there's so much value in getting out and doing a bit of exercise. You know, it might not be sport. It might be something like music. You need something else in your life. Otherwise, you're just getting bogged down by that same old stress. I know for myself, when I was doing my GCSEs, when I was doing my A-levels, a lot of kids my age weren't allowed to play. Mm. You know, their parents were saying to them, no, you have to study. You can't mm. play on a Saturday. You can't play on a Sunday. For me, I'm lucky enough, my parents were actively encouraging me to go out and play. And that was a real relief for me because I do a study session in the morning, a bit of revision, bit of homework, whatever. Go and play cricket. Your mind is off it. Your brain is still being engaged. It's just in a completely different environment. You know, you're challenging yourself in a different arena. And I know that I always would come back to my homework or my revision completely refreshed after playing a bit of football or playing a bit of cricket. It's about striking a balance, I think. Quite a lot of working environments are realising this now as well, aren't they? They're kind of flexi-working. And my workplace, we're encouraging people to get up and walk around a bit because you don't want to just sit at your desk and just be like working away all day because they know that's not good for your kind of short-term or your long-term mental health. Some people have got that workaholic mentality. Uh, I never did. So I was really relieved to have those sporting breaks. And just finally, one thing which Wanted always had at the club was diversity amongst its players. I think that really helped me. I'm sure it helped a lot of the other lads who might be listening to this when it comes to just mixing people from different backgrounds. It's something you were keen to talk about as well, being mixed race yourself. Why is that important to have at a club? And also conversely, was racism ever something you encountered within the club, within games or elsewhere? I think the diversity it wanted is absolutely fantastic, to be honest. Right from an early age, it, it taught me so much. Quite a lot of teams we play against, they might have 11 white players or they might have 11 Asian players. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think what we have is a completely rich mixture of cultures. And I learned that from an early age. You're mixing with different groups of people. You're learning about different cultures. You know, we've had West Indians at the club, South Africans, people from Pakistan, India. That's what cricket's really good for, I think. Like I said, you learn so much from interacting with different people. That's one of my favourite things about Wanstead is that we've got a, such a good mix of people. I've never personally experienced racism at, at Wanstead. I'm sure there has been some in the past. I'm sure there has been some at other clubs. But everybody, I think, seems to be completely comfortable with the state of affairs. Everyone feels welcomed at the club. Well... That's how I perceive it anyway. I don't know if, if it's different for other people. I think we are quite a welcoming club and we're able to interact with different groups of people, which is great. Was it ever something you experienced at games? I can't think of an example, to be honest. Well, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> at least. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I don't think so, which is really good. 
we've talked about Jay the Cricketer. Let's talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, mate. So first of all, why don't you talk me through your early life, your teenage years, and whether looking back, do you think you had any early mental health experiences? Who's the Jay we meet here? I don't think that I've ever really had, struggled with anything major in terms of mental health, which I don't take that for granted at all. But I think maybe that's owing to the fact that I've never really taken anything too seriously. Quite a laid back guy, as you've probably got from me over the years. I think that's partly the sport as well, which has helped me with that. But the only thing for me really would be people would perceive me maybe to have small confidence issues mm -hmm. in terms of I'm not very loud, not mm -hmm. very outspoken. But I think I can exude a quiet confidence, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. I um, think so. I think I'm very comfortable with myself. I don't really get caught up too much on what people think about me. That's also a good thing. Yeah, which is a good thing. I feel like I'm just uh, quiet, but quietly confident. Growing up as mixed race or mixed heritage was something you were quite keen to talk about, mate. Now, your dad, who's also a bit of a legend around the club, is white British and your mum is Indian. Is that right? Yeah, that's yep. right. Yeah. First off, how did both of them give you a grounding in both these cultures and what was that like growing up? I've absolutely loved growing up mixed race, to be honest. I know that's not the experience for everybody mixed race, but I'm very fortunate to have enjoyed it. My dad didn't really need to give me so much of a grounding in the culture because, you know, growing up in England, you kind of have that. You're immersed in it anyway. Whereas my mum has worked hard over the years to push that Indian culture with me and my family. Luckily for me, I am the oldest of six cousins of the younger generation who were all half white half Indian my cousin Layla is she's only about four months younger than me mm -hmm. so it was really nice to grow up having that shared experience with mm -hmm. somebody else mm -hmm. I'm able to tap into both cultures which is great the Indian side as you get with quite a lot of South Asian families is, big. is very <laughs> very very big and very family oriented there's always some kind of wedding some kind of gathering some kind of community event a up thousand in, man up in Coventry <laughs> yeah big town hall in Coventry or Leicester yeah thousand people people at a wedding so you know we kind of got the Indian culture from early we still do it you know we still do all the community stuff we still go up to Coventry spend time my grandma didn't speak English we didn't speak Gujarati but we had such a strong relationship with her with such limited communication I think that just shows how strong the family bond was there I know that not everybody that's mixed race has got the same love for it but I feel very privileged to be part of two cultures and I feel like I belong in both of them like you said you're someone who carries both those cultures quite well however have you ever faced any discrimination or subconscious bias from white people or South Asian people because you didn't fit into their expectations of how you should act in inverted commas or what you should be like so things like music, sport, how you spoke. And if so, just tell me about any of those experiences. I think I'm very lucky in this situation. I think especially when you get somebody that's mixed race, black and white, they get pigeonholed as black. Mixed race, Asian and white, it's a, a bit more of a blurred line there. Quite a lot of people struggle to pinpoint exactly where I'm from. I've mm -hmm. had so many people over the years, Spanish, Italian... <laughs> Turkish, Middle Eastern, Mexican. Did that ever annoy you? Or was it just something you got used yeah, to? Yeah, you, you know, I actually quite enjoyed it. You know, I could seamlessly fit in anywhere, really. I could be from most places in the world and people would probably think, yeah, that's about right. But I think because I'm quite light-skinned, people wouldn't necessarily look at me and straight away think Indian. They might do, but I don't think I've ever had that bias from that perspective. I think it's also helped a lot. I thought about this a lot recently as well, actually, is that my name, Jay Williams, it's a white name. Mm. Jay could be either. Williams is a white British name. I don't think I've ever suffered that bias when it comes mm. to maybe job applications, university applications, that kind of subconscious bias that might creep in if I had my mum's maiden name, if I was Jay Chohan instead mm. of Jay Williams. So I think the combination of that and being quite light-skinned has put me in a fortunate position there. So I don't think I 
have to necessarily live up to a stereotype where I have to be a certain way for the sporting or for music or anything. I'm just able to express my own individuality mm. as a mixed race. And like I said, with my cousin Layla at the same time, we're both able to grow up together and she's grew up around here as well. So we were hanging out together all the time. It's really nice for us to have that joint experience where we don't have to live up to any expectations. Growing up, we both went to pretty diverse schools, both at secondary and sixth form level. Do you think your sporting ability helped you fit in be liked and excel where perhaps others might have been excluded or looked down upon because they weren't good that makes sense that makes perfect sense you're completely spot on there I went to Leytonstone School. If any listeners know it, they'll know that it's not got the best rep in the world. I know that you went to pretty rough school as well. So uh, you're already there at risk of falling into the wrong crowds or mm. falling the wrong side of them wrong crowds. But going straight into that school, walking straight into the school football team, captaining the school cricket team from year seven, you kind of get accelerated up the social ladder, mm. which is not fair, but that's the way that the schools work, you know. So straight away, people are kind of looking up to you because you're leaving class early to go and play your school football games or your cricket games and if you're not liked you're at least respected immediately I got this respect from nowhere just because I was good at football I was good at cricket I was one, one of those annoying kids who was good at everything <laughs> every sport <laughs> one, of the t- one of the top performers in PE so people kind of look up to you straight away whereas for other people in my class that perhaps weren't as good they had to earn that respect over time you know they mm. had to shine through in other aspects there's a pressure as well I definitely had it where I was half decent at cricket but I wasn't amazing but I was in a secondary school where cricket just wasn't played so that didn't really matter and if you're a kid that wants to be good at something and you're not that pressure and feeling of being a failure is massive isn't it Mm. Yeah. you want to be liked don't you every kid wants to be liked every kid wants to fit in that's the point right there is just a popularity game especially early on like that I mean it's sad to look back now and think that that's what it was like but it is a popularity game and you know I was liked from early on because I was good at sport and you know that's not fair compared to some of the other people that were not so good but I think looking back I've also thought about this one quite a lot recently I don't think I was really thinking at the time but I was quite unique in the way that I wasn't just hanging out with the football team I wasn't just staying in like a clique the cool kids or whatever I used to just flit around different social groups and by year 11 I think I was friends with basically everybody in the school there were some people that were maybe a bit lower down the social ladder for want of a better term who I befriended them because they seemed like they were a bit lonely. I can think of about four or five examples of people that I actively made a, an effort to invite along to things. And I had one friend who was just bobbing along in the background almost. Nobody really knew who he was. And I was inviting him along to play football with everybody. And, and suddenly he became one of the popular kids. Mm. It shouldn't be that way. But looking back now, I'm actually quite proud of the way that I was able to interact with everybody in the school. That was quite important for me as well, to have a solid grounding of friends. As you were growing up, Were you ever worried that you'd be pigeonholed by people as just being this one-dimensional cricketer or one-dimensional sports person and had nothing else to say? And and how did you make that distinction and carve out your own identity? Yeah, that takes time as well, I think, because when you're in year seven, people are still quite immature and they kind of just see you, oh, you're the sporting one. You get pigeonholed in a group, don't you? There's You've got the geeky group or you've Mm. got the indie group or you've got the sporty group. And that's where I kind of was moving around different groups. I hope that nobody really pigeonholed me in that respect. And then kind of as you grow older, your personality starts to shine through a bit more. I think as you get to year 10, year 11, you become 
a person more than just this person that plays sports you're a more rounded person your academics come into it who you hang out with what you do outside of school I might have been hanging out with a sporty lot but then I was hanging out with them on one day and then I was go out with the ones that discovered alcohol really early mm. I was out with them a lot as well and they weren't so sporty so I think the way that I was never really attached to one friendship group I think that helped me in terms of avoiding being pigeonholed as it were we fast forward to university now and you left your secondary school go to a new sixth form did you feel ready for university how hard was it adjusting to that new sixth form I don't think any of us were really ready for university to be honest who's the J we meet here I left Leytonstone, which I absolutely loved it at Leytonstone, despite it being a rough school, which we've spoken about before. I think what I loved most about it was it was probably a very even mix, like 33% white, 33% black, 33% Asian. As I got with the cricket club, I got a diverse mixture of people and I was hanging out with all of them. And then I went to sixth form in Essex, which was basically just all white people. <laughs> and it was very, very hard. I think I was the only one who was any kind of like slightly Asian I think no, actually there was one other, but yeah, that was, was that, that culture shock for you. It was a culture shock, and I think definitely I moved out to Essex a bit for sixth form. Some of the views that you got were not really some of the views that I shared. That... And that was said to you, or like no, 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 no. Sorry, not to me. Yeah, but you kind of perceive, you know, when people say things, it was just like mm, okay, you wouldn't really be saying that in Leytonstone. No. <laughs> That was a bit of a culture shock for me. I did enjoy it at sixth form and I made some really good friends from that, but it was very different. And then going to university, I was able to settle back into similar routine of multiculturalism, which I liked. I wasn't ready for university, really. I had to do a crash course in cooking. <laughs> I absolutely love cooking now, but I could make, what, scrambled eggs and a bit of bacon before I went to university. <laughs> I think for a month before, well, my dad's a chef. He was giving me a load of recipes. In terms of growing up as a person, you had the same thing. You're a boy when you go to university mm. and then you come out an adult, don't you? You, you, you learn, you, well, <laughs> more of an adult. More of an adult, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you learn how to live on your own. You learn how to live independently, manage your money, pay your bills. I absolutely loved every minute of university. I didn't want it to finish. Made some great mates there. Ended up playing Gaelic football, so most of my mates were Irish, so we were always down the pub. <laughs> Drinking loads of Guinness. No stereotypes there. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah, they certainly lived up to the stereotypes. Singing, drinking Guinness. It was fantastic. And I love Birmingham as a city. I was able to just continue being me, really, which was very important. Met some great people there. And once again, some lifelong friends. As you went through university and beyond, how did you navigate this new world through your mixed heritage identity? Did you encounter new challenges or feel you had to fit in or play up to assumptions people placed on you or not? Yeah, I think like we said earlier, it's a case of I don't really fit categorically into one box because people don't really know where I'm from I think more so than racial or ethnic stereotyping it was more that when I got there to Birmingham there was me there was a Brummie guy and there was quite a lot of people from Greenbelt Oxford Cotswolds all of that so more than anything I was kind of getting stereotyped for being a bit of an East End geezer I think a lot of us <laughs> did when we went to yeah. that were outside London kind of had me down as this cockney guy Harry Redknapp sort I remember one guy asking me if my dad owned a market stall yeah. <laughs> I think I got asked if I was Joey Essex or something like that yeah, yeah, yeah. People say, oh, you look. I'm like no just please <laughs> I'm a middle class East Londoner <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I remember one, one time saying something like oh like instead of horse mm. 
and they went on and on about that for ages. Uh, st- I think they still bring it up sometimes now, but I don't think I ever had to live up to anything really, which was good. I think we spoke earlier about inclusivity in sport. I have to say the Gaelic football team was completely fantastic for that. They welcomed anybody in. I had some of my best memories ever from that. It could easily have been quite an elitist thing. I mean, once again, I was lucky that I went there and I went straight into the first team. Which is a sport you'd never played before. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it's transferable skills. <laughs> but there was quite a few of us that had never played it before. And, you know, they were just like, if you never played it before, then great. If you played it before, then great. We're going to have these training sessions. We're going to get you ready for the games. It was really enjoyable. Once again, gave me an outlet. Gave me some really good friends and allowed me to express my individuality through sport and through just by making my friends, Mm. you know. The Black Lives Matter movement is something you wanted to talk about from a mental health perspective when we were chatting off air, Jay. What was your reaction to when the protests kicked off? Did it challenge any existing beliefs or reaffirm any existing beliefs? And just talk to me a bit about why you wanted to talk about it. I think it certainly woke something up in me. I've said a few times on this, I've been thinking a lot about these kind of things. And I've realised that I've not been doing enough, really. I need to challenge things more. When you see something happening, when you read something, get really, really, really annoyed when I read something saying all lives matter or white lives matter so completely missing the point more than that it just said to me i need to educate myself a bit more here so i went out i think quite a lot of people did it. i went out and i bought myself a couple of books i think it's really important because you and i both would have grown up with the history syllabus being very very one-dimensional and not a lot of tudors exactly yeah <laughs> a lot uh, of henry the eighth <laughs> i know so boring as well <laughs> it kind of said to me look there's this alternative reality that has happened something that i have not known enough about you know all really learned about was slavery and yeah and, that was literally it and, that was and, our extent of black history exactly yeah and you got this one token month october month when really it should be the whole curriculum yeah, 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 yeah. it should Every be there month. all the time and i think the uk can be very arrogant at times the only thing we got on our syllabus really is portraying how it was in America, very little to do with the situation of black people in the UK. So I think it is very key about educating that. I'll give a, a little plug to my friend Scotty Emmons from Wanstead now. He's done, been doing some fantastic work. He's great. He's a charity worker. He had an initiative to introduce books, diverse set of books for primary school kids. And he set this up. He set up a GoFundMe and he absolutely smashed it through the roof, kind of exceeded his own expectations, raised thousands and thousands, and he's got so many bundles for different primary schools. And I think that's so important. If we can educate people from early on, even got endorsed by Pharrell Williams's clothing brand, who did a donation shirt, splitting it up between that, Black Minds Matter, and the Stephen Lawrence Foundation. So I picked myself up one of those shirts. It's really good to see the activism that's come out of it. I hope the conversation doesn't go away. The important thing for me is educating from an early age, because nobody's born a racist they just need to know the whole picture from early on bame is an interesting term i don't use it anymore and i know black and asian people are like don't like being labeled as it what's your take on it it's another one i've thought of recently as well actually we use it for work and i'm not entirely comfortable with using it for work but that's just the term at the moment it's very much a us and them isn't it and i've even been thinking am i bame i don't know am i black and ethnic minority I think it groups people together who have different experiences yeah. into one thing. As a mixed race person, am I BAME? If I was mixed race, black and white, I'd be get labelled as BAME. But once again, like I said, I'm light-skinned. I've got a white name. Am I BAME? Who knows? I think it's a completely unhelpful term, to be honest. Mm. It groups white people and it groups everyone else in something else. The experience that black people have is entirely different to the experience that Asian people have and all other ethnic minorities. It's not just one shared experience. It's so many different experiences. While that might not be the point of the use of the term, it generalises 
unhelpfully large group of people who are not necessarily aligned and just finally on this topic mate going through all these experiences that you have who's the jay sitting across to me now as opposed to the one who played cricket with me 12 years ago is it someone completely different or have you stayed the same i think i've stayed the same what do you think (laughs) i feel like you've evolved Uh, yeah 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 that's probably the better term i think i've always had these values of trying to enjoy myself trying to make sure that everyone enjoys their cricket including people and I think that I've just been able to manifest them a bit better obviously matured a lot but I think essentially I'm very similar to how I was before just as you say evolved our final topic of conversation Jay and it's one I have with all my special guests or at least try to which is a general natter about our mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment including or excluding circumstances we're living in I think it's good circumstances are circumstances I think throughout I've definitely tried to stay positive I think I'm quite a positive person anyway like we said earlier on the pod I'm moving house tomorrow moving in with my girlfriend and throughout the whole thing We've been separated, which has been tough, but I've always tried to look at the positive bit of it. I've known I've been moving house throughout lockdown. I've said it to my parents. I'm never going to have this quality time with you ever again. So it's nice. We were able to every day, because you can't do anything else. So Mm. every day we cooked together, we chat together, we did quizzes, we watched films and we watched TV series together. I've had it a lot better than other people. And that's Mm. how I've, I've looked at it. Touch wood. Nobody I know has been affected that badly by coronavirus as a young person I'm not personally going to be affected by it that much I hope so I think while it's been difficult it's been easier for me than it has been for a lot of people and I've, I've tried to put that into perspective and have a positive outlook on everything you've already said that you don't live with any long-term mental health issues or conditions but what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better you know which ones have you found that have worked maybe which ones that haven't the key one is sport as we've said throughout I think it's good to have something different an outlet a distraction for yourself so that's something that's always been on my mind if I'm not playing it I've been reading it I've been writing it I've been watching it so it's that I think you need to find something in your life which is enjoyable just to give yourself if especially if you're starting to have negative thoughts about something just the way to put those to bed a bit obviously I'm lucky enough to have not lived with long-term mental health problems obviously if something bad has happened it might play on my mind for a while I tend to just try and think of happier memories or, or like I said put things into perspective that's always been a big thing for me I think I've been very lucky you compare it to other people in England and then you compare it to other people around the world extremely lucky to be honest to be in a situation that I'm in so I think sometimes I just have to remind myself that if something bad is happening in the grand scheme of things is it really that bad no it's not mm. so that's a uh, magnifying the problem in the grand scheme of things is probably one of the key tools I use and how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or may just be going through a poor period of mental health I like to think like I said earlier that I'm very approachable I've had a couple of mates have mentioned to me that they're going for a rough patch and I just make myself available I say look if you ever need to chat I'm always going to be here for you anytime and especially over lockdown, I had, I won't name, but I have one friend who's really been struggling quite a lot. I think he's had a couple of family bereavements recently and he's going through a bit of a, a rough patch. Doesn't really know where he is with his mental health at the moment. And so we just checked in every now and then. We'd sit down Sunday afternoon, I'd get him on FaceTime and we'd just have a whiskey together, virtual whiskey. And he'd just chat to me. And I think that helped him a lot, to be honest. I've said to him, that invite is always there. I think it's very important that you support your friends. And I think it's very important that you are able to be open with your friends. I think especially, I'd like to think we're getting more mature as we're getting older. I'd like to think that if I was ever struggling with something, that my close group of friends would be able to have that serious chat with me and vice versa. I think it's about encouraging that 
and just making sure that they know at all times, you know, always here for a chat. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Jay, as you know. Mm -hmm. Firstly, what does it mean to you and how do we tackle it? I think it's that sense of being a man, you know, man up or whatever. It's completely unhelpful, those terms. And this whole macho thing, you know, like we said earlier, calling something or someone gay for doing something or other. It's like I said earlier, it's about getting better at calling those things out when they happen. That's something that I need to work on, definitely. If I hear something that doesn't make me feel comfortable, because I'm not comfortable if I hear somebody call something gay, I will try and say something in the future, I hope. That's not really the kind of person I am. I'm not really that kind of person to call things out, but I think... I should be. I think if one of my friends did it, then I would. But when it's somebody who's not so close to me, that's when it gets a bit more challenging for mm. me, I think. I also talk a lot on this pod, Jay, about positive masculinity. Mm. What are some of the qualities you think a man should have to exude to be described as positively masculine? Hopefully, in a few years' time, masculinity is just positive masculinity. Yeah, I think you just need to be comfortable in yourself, don't you? I think quite a lot of toxic masculinity will come out of... Insecure people. Insecurity. And, you know, they feel like they have to give it the Billy Big Bollocks because people need to accept them. When really, actually, it's the other way around. Be respected a bit more if you're just a bit more open and honest about yourself. I'd like to think we could get to a point where positive masculinity is the only form of masculinity. I think we're definitely heading in the right direction, albeit there is a very, very long path ahead. Any examples that you get in the public eye, people are exuding positive masculinity, they really help the cause. And I think it's really important that everyone, whether it's media or not, praise examples of positive masculinity and obviously highlight toxic masculinity, but don't use it to say all men are like this, if that makes sense. Exactly, because all men are not like anything. Like we said earlier about categorising everybody as BAME. You know, there's so many different types of men. So what is masculinity? It's such a capture-all for something that is so broad and so vague. I think breaking down those masculine stereotypes and turning them into goodwill stories, examples of where people are being comfortable within themselves and comfortable enough to break down that kind of taboo of toxic masculinity. I think that's the way that we're going to progress. And just finally, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? We need to be more open and accepting as a society, for sure. I think uh, what you're doing with Vent is absolutely fantastic. Cheers, mate. That wasn't just a question, just to compliment me, just for the <laughs> listeners. Any initiative like that, what you're doing with Vent, there's some great things coming out these days. And it's just about opening up that dialogue and keeping the conversation going and educating people. And like we said earlier, the more that role models can come out and say, this is what I've experienced. This is how I live with my mental health issues. It's okay to have mental health issues. We can kind of learn to manage them. That's going to be the way that people are going to become more accepting as a society. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Mind on the Game. I want to say a big thank you to Jay for being my special guest on this episode and giving me another nostalgia trip down memory lane. I hope you've enjoyed the pod, Venters. If you've got an idea of who I should interview next, let me know. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or give us a rating and review on iTunes. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mind on the Game. And remember, it's always okay to vent.